We're finally starting to organize around a consistent structure for the book of Revelation. In the early chapters, it's very hard to, to trace where we're going. But once you get into the middle and all this information starts to pile up, it's good to try to organize it. And uh, we've got this outline that we're running through. We've made it to part six. There's going to be 12 total. Uh, and it begins, number one, with the rapture of the church. The book of Revelation is about the end of the world. What's going to happen at the end of time? And the first thing we believe is the rapture of the church. This is not specifically described in the book of Revelation, but according to our eschatology here, we've talked about why in great detail before, we believe that the church will be caught up to heaven to be with the Lord prior to these events taking place. The second one that we see is the rise of Babylon. That over this final seven-year period, there will be the rise of a wicked worldwide empire that is symbolically called Babylon. And it will not be long before we dive into what that means a little bit more. This empire will rise. And number three, there will be the ravage of God's people. The Jews and those who come to faith in Christ during this time will be horribly and terribly persecuted like never before. And there will be a number that comes out of this time of those that have been slain in this way that nobody can count. We're going to read more about it tonight. Number four is the ruin of the planet. And this is what many of us think of when we think Revelation is these cosmic plagues that are hurled down upon the earth. And however you interpret them, we've gotten to the place where there have been earthquakes, stars falling from heaven, the grass and trees have been burned up, at least a third of it. The salt water and fresh water has been poisoned. The sun, moon, and stars have been blotted out because of the smoke that is rising, it seems to be. I was at the Braves game with my sons yesterday, and I kind of wish the sun would be blotted out a third, to be honest with you, sitting in the outfield under 102 degrees, but it's not going to be, a, yeah, it was hot, but it's, a, it's not going to be anything pleasant when this takes place. Number five is the revenge of the devil. The Bible says God will unlock the abyss, the demon prison. He will turn Satan loose without restraint to torment and then to kill mankind. And number six is what we're continuing to discuss today that we're calling the refuge of the faithful. That in the midst of all this, you would be justified in wondering, well, who's going to be able to survive this? And then Jesus himself said, well, if God didn't cut it short, nobody would survive it. But we are going to see in these chapters that the Lord is taking special care to provide a refuge for his people, especially the nation of Israel, the Jews. The book of Revelation is very Israel-centric, and we've talked about that in a previous week as well. Last week, we saw the rise of the two witnesses. Remember this? These two prophets that are going to arise in the last days and prophesy in Jerusalem. And God will allow them to call down plagues, fire from heaven, and they will be invincible until the time of their prophecy is over. And I believe that what chapter 11 was describing without great detail, as John and Jesus have given us, is what's the midpoint of this seven-year week, this tribulation period, that we call the abomination of desolation. There will come a point when the Antichrist, more on him next week, will go into the temple of God, which we presume will be rebuilt. He will defile it, declare himself to be God, compel worship of himself, and begin a wholesale slaughter of the nation of Israel and of Christians. We believe this takes place at the midpoint. That's one of the pretty certain things we have here. There's three and a half years remaining. And the Lord is talking so far about the preservation of the testimony that these witnesses will be around to continue to preach and proclaim the truth. 
And we're going to continue to see how the Lord is going to protect not only his testimony, but his people during this time. Also, as we've been getting into these last or these middle chapters of the book, uh, we've seen two announcements of the end. And that can be a little confusing because they'll say, the end has now come and the kingdom of God is here. And then it'll describe more plagues and more terrible things that, that happen. And the reason for that is because the final judgments that Revelation describes are going to happen more or less all in a rush. It's going to happen very quickly. And it specifically describes the fall of Babylon, that evil empire. So what these chapters are doing are giving us a significant amount of context. Because when we read the seven bold judgments, it's going to talk about the fall of the Antichrist. And we don't even really know who that is in Revelation yet. So these chapters are not really moving us forward in time. They're just giving us context of what is happening simultaneously with all these other judgments we've been reading about. And today, chapter 12 will give us the cosmic picture of what is going on during this time. It's also going to give us a picture of what has been happening, what is happening right now, and what will continue to take place in the heavenlies. The heavenlies is the Bible's term for the spiritual realm. Or if you want to be real sci-fi about it, the spiritual dimension. The heavenlies. And it's going to focus especially on the devil and his eventual demise. Now, there are some who want to interpret all Bible prophecy, and even beyond that, in some cases, all of Scripture, without, well, say, with as little supernaturalism as possible. What is the best way to interpret this without positing angels or miracles or plagues? And that's not always a bad thing, but the impulse can be wrong. That it's much simpler to talk about, well, the Bible says in the end there's going to be a one world government. Well, there's plenty of people that believe that, whether or not you're a Christian. But when you start to talk about the devil and locusts out of the pit and stars falling from heaven, it can be cringy for some people. They don't want to talk about it. But the world is not just material. We do not believe that existence and reality is just what you can see and measure and observe. There is something going on behind the scenes where God dwells, but more than that, where God and his angels and the devil and his angels exist. So as we look at this, you don't want to just interpret this physically. There's more to it. Chapter 12, let's read verses 1 through 6. Highly symbolic chapter, but I think it's pretty easy to decipher if you look closely. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, or crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. We as dispensationalists, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial 
theologians here. Uh, a lot of words, they mean things, but it just helps make it more specific. We believe in what is called the literal interpretation of Scripture. By that we mean you should interpret the Bible, including the prophetic passages, according to the normal rules of language. There's no secret code that you've got to crack. God gave us a book. Read the book. The accusation that often comes our way, though, is people that interpret the Bible that way are so rigid that they can't understand figurative language. Okay? Yes, we can. This is a great example of we're going to interpret this passage literally, but in order to interpret it literally, you do have to recognize that it is symbolic. Because what does he say? A great sign appeared in heaven. Semeon in Greek. It means symbol. We're going to break down the symbols, but to interpret it literally means you interpret the symbols as referring to actual reality. That's the difference. So let's look at these. First of all, we have a woman. She's clothed at the sun, the moon, and 12 stars. I'll go ahead and tell you this represents Israel. Now, let me explain why we believe this is Israel. It actually goes all the way back to Genesis 37, verse 9. Do you remember when Joseph was having dreams and telling his brothers about him? Now, some people want to think that Joseph was only ever in the right in everything he did. I kind of see Joseph as a rather snarky little punk when he was a child, and he grew out of it. Because how else do you interpret a, a young boy, let's call him 11, 12, 13, 14, walking up and saying, hey, boys, guess what? I had a dream last night. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowed down to me. Now, how many children did Jacob have? He had, well, he had 13 if you count Dinah, but let's leave Dinah out of it. 12 sons. Uh, Joseph is one of them. He goes, 11 stars. He had 11 brothers. And, the sun, and they were all bowing down to me. What do you think that means, Reuben? I can't quite figure it out. And they all got angry. Even his dad got angry with him about this one. I don't see Joseph there as this little innocent, well, I just don't know what any of this means. I think he was probably acting like an adolescent. And it took some time to humble him, and God made him into the man that he could use eventually. Point being, this vision was the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars. The sun representing Jacob, his father. The moon representing his mother. And the 12 stars, if you want to include him as the 12th, obviously represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So this consistent image in Scripture is applied here. 12 is a significant number. So this is why we believe that this represents Israel. And as we go through, I think, in the rest of this passage, that will make more sense. There are a couple other options that folks have put out. Uh, the Catholic Church, some of them prefer this to be Mary. Uh, but as you will see, I mean, that's, there's not a terrible application there because she is going to give birth to the Messiah, but there's more to it than that. It's, it's obviously referring to Israel as we go, and if uh, Mary represented Israel in this passage, I don't really have a problem with that, but it should not be used as justification for any idea of Mary as the queen of heaven or any other nonsense like that. Some people see this as Eve. Uh, no, it's more specific than that, and it's certainly not the church. Uh, this woman is in labor, and this represents Israel, as we will see. Okay, the second one, we have a dragon. Don't tell me the Bible's boring, friends. If you, I remember I had friends. Oh, I just you know, hate reading in school. I hate reading Great Gatsby. I hate reading Taylor Two Said. I want something with dragons in it. Like, hey, read your Bible, man. It's got dragons. Not only that, a seven-headed dragon. 
with ten horns and seven diadems. Why does the ESV translate it diadem and not crown as some of the older ones do? Well, because it's trying to draw a distinction between earlier we've seen the Bible talking about giving crowns to someone, and it's that word stephanos, which means a laurel. It's a victor's crown. It's something you get when you've won the Olympics or you've won a battle. But this is the other word, diadem, and it means a crown of authority to rule over somebody. So you get gold medal in the Olympics, they put the, the laurel wreath on your head. That doesn't mean you're king of anything. That just means you won a victory. But if you have the crown, the diadem on your head, it implies authority and rulership. So it's good to have this distinction here. Probably not hard to figure it out, and it will tell us later. This dragon is the devil. This is Satan. And we will talk in, a, in the coming weeks more about what these heads and horns represent, because we're going to see this image a little bit. The heads represent kingdoms. The crowns represent the ten allied kings of Babylon, which we looked, about, looked at in Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. And uh, we'll talk more about that, because the Antichrist, when he arises, is going to look very similar to the dragon symbolically. And this dragon, I mean, get the picture in your mind, is throwing down a third of the stars with his tail. And he sits there waiting to devour the child of this woman. So there's this woman with stars in the sun, and, and she's in labor pains. Pretty intense picture, right? And there's this enormous seven-headed dragon crouched and waiting so that as soon as the child is born, he's going to devour that child. Before we move on to explain who this child is, we're going to talk a little bit about the devil, because this chapter has an awful lot of information about him. And I'm going to give you a lot of scripture today, because the Bible does tell us quite a bit about Satan and the devil. Not as much as we might like to satisfy our own curiosity about, like, what are the deep mysteries of hell? You don't want to know what the deep mysteries of hell are. You don't need to know. But there's some basic things about him we can learn. First and foremost, you must believe that the devil exists. The devil is real. This is basic Christian theology, that the devil is real. It's amazing how many people you come across who believe in God, but they don't believe in the devil. And they say, well, I can't believe in the devil. Why? Well, it's usually because they're choosing beliefs based upon what they want to be true. When it seems to me it's just as easy, if not more so in some ways, to believe that there is a personal malignant force in the world making you do things you don't want to do. Like, yeah, I can believe that. You ever decided, this is what I'm going to do? I'm never going to do that again. And then you're like, how did I end up back here? I wasn't even thinking about that. Well, there's somebody out to get you. And you go, yeah, I can believe that. The devil exists. Denial of that fact, as it's often said, is the devil's greatest victory. The greatest victory he ever won is they don't even believe in me anymore. Remember that old Keith Green song? Where he's, it's written from the perspective of the devil, and it's enough to like, send chills down your spine, but uh, the chorus goes, he's, the devil speaking says, I'm gaining power by the hour. They're falling by the score. It's getting very easy now because no one believes in me anymore. How do you stop a foe you don't even believe in? So who is this? The devil is a powerful spirit being, a fallen angel. He is a spirit who is in rebellion against God. He is responsible for the temptation of mankind and the proliferation of evil in the world. 
He is not the one that has committed or invented all these things, but he is the one who has made it his business to provoke and draw these things out of the world. There are two passages in the Bible that have traditionally, and by traditionally, I mean going way back, even in, I believe in some cases, to Hebrew rabbinic tradition, that are not specifically in the passage talking about the devil, but has been generally recognized by the church and by Jews as well to be referring to him typologically. And these come from Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. In Ezekiel 28, the prophet is writing against the king of Tyre, and in Isaiah 14, he's writing against Babylon, which, knowing what we know about that in Revelation, is significant. But as they describe what these kings and nations have done, there reaches a point where the language just goes so far beyond anything that could remotely and accurately apply to the city that from the very beginning, for a long time, the, the students of the Bible have understood this to describe the devil. So we're going ahead and look at both of these several times today. And let's see what both of them have to say about his origin story, shall we say. About who he was and where he came from. Ezekiel 28 says, You, speaking to Satan, were an anointed guardian cherub. We've read about cherubs before. They're mighty angels. The Lord says, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. So you were on the holy mountain of God. It, it, there are some who believe, and I think there's good reason to think it, that Satan might have in fact been the angel placed in stewardship over the Garden of Eden itself. Isaiah 14 tells us what happened. Says you were exalted and anointed, but something changed. Isaiah 14, 13 and 14 tells us, You said in your heart, five I wills here, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Arrogance, pride, will to power. That was the enemy's sin. One of God's most glorious and mightiest angels chose to reign himself. I will be the ruler, which of course would not be permitted. And as we're going to read in a couple of verses, he was the serpent in the Garden of Eden. That he was the one who decided to corrupt creation. If he was the guardian angel of Eden, that makes him the greatest failure of responsibility that the world has ever seen. That the devil who was anointed and exalted, there are some that say he was as second only to God. It doesn't quite say that specifically, but he was a big deal is what it does say. And it says here that this dragon throws down a third of the stars with his tail. This is taken by many to describe the fact that when Satan fell, angels went with him. The Bible talks often about Satan's angels. And the proportion, if this is correct, would seem to be one third that one-third of the angels went with him. Star is a very common picture for angel in the Bible, very often in the poetic books especially. That Satan is a real, evil, spiritual being, a fallen angel who has an army of other fallen angels in rebellion against God with a hatred for humanity. You have to understand this. Or you will decide, I'm going to fight against an impersonal foe. Evil is just sort of out there. It just kind of floats and you've got to resist evil. 
You know, that you'll hear things like, it's not like the world is out to get you. You've just got to watch out for your own propensities. Yes, you do need to watch out for your own propensities. Sin comes out of you. But you also have a personal adversary, an enemy that we call the devil and Satan. And we've got to get past being embarrassed talking about him. The devil. Oh, you don't seriously believe in the devil. It's bad enough you believe in God. Well, of course I believe in the devil. Of course I believe this. Because the Bible says so. You say, well, it's just symbolic. It's just symbolic of evil in the world. Well, you can play that game your whole life. But Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, Paul tells us this. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? Well, because I'm weak and I struggle with my flesh. That's not what he says. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What does that mean? Those folks in Washington are not your enemies. Or pick your, your spot. Hollywood, Nashville, whatever. They're not your enemies. They are tools of your enemy. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's kind of hard to get around that one. Put on the armor of God. Yeah, man, I got to stand. Against what? The devil. Well, what about these people? They're so evil. They're so wicked. Yes, but you are told to try your best to save those people. The only thing you're told to do against Satan is draw your sword and resist him. Our enemy is spiritual. And the thing is, when you take the time to study what the Bible has to say about demons and angels and Satan and all that, it's very hard to go about normal life like you usually do. When you realize that there's more to what I see and some of the, the wickedness and evil in the world that we see that just baffles us. Like, how could someone do something like that? Because there is an enemy that is working to destroy all that is good and wonderful in the world. What is the devil's attitude? Hatred and pride. Arrogance. You get this picture of Satan despising humanity. Being in charge of these little flesh bags in the Garden of Eden. And then he finds out not only that, but they're going to be the ones that are placed in charge over this world that God has created. They're the ones that were created in the image of God. And he looks at himself and says, look at me. Look at how glorious I am in my power. And these, these naked creatures squabbling around in the mud with their flesh. And he says, that's it. I'll rule myself. I'll be king over this. Not them. In fact, let me show you how weak they are. All it's going to take is an apple. And I can corrupt all of them. The pride of Satan. And you want to be careful how far you want to take what I'm about to say. So take it with a grain of salt and leave it aside if you don't like it, okay? But when I've spoken to men who have dealt with those that are demonically possessed, like I'm talking of serious affliction by the enemy, and they're working to cast these demons out in the name of Jesus. Very frequently what they say is when these things begin to manifest and speak, they speak with the most arrogant, deriding language towards people. It's like, how dare you come against me in your flesh, in your body? Look how disgusting you are. Look how sick you are. And you think you're going to command me. And of course, we don't command the devil, do we? We tell Jesus. You, we get your big brother involved. 
You don't try to beat up the big kid on the block. You call your brother to do it. Jude tells us that even Michael the archangel won't rebuke Satan. He says, may the Lord rebuke you. Jesus, please get him. Right? In the name of Jesus. Everything we do is in the name of Jesus. So, again, if that doesn't help you, leave it aside. It's okay. But there are legitimate testimonies that I believe. And it certainly fits with the picture the Bible gives us of Satan, doesn't it? But let me tell you this. The devil is not God. He is not even a God. He's not God's opposite. That, that's another big deception the devil pulled is, well, that's the God of light and I am the God of darkness. No, you're not. You most certainly are not. The devil is not omni-anything. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Satan is not. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Satan does not. He likes to trick you into thinking you, he does. I know everything about you. No, he's just a really good psychologist. He's been observing people for thousands of years. He knows how they tick, and he knows how to get you. But that does not make him omniscient, right? You ever been tempted by something that absolutely repulsed you? That, that's a good example. Saying like, oh, I'm going to get him with this. You're like, ew, I don't even like that. Because he's not omniscient. The Lord is also omnipresent. He's everywhere. The devil is not. The devil has agents and angels that he sends throughout the world, but he can't be everywhere at once. Only the Lord can do that. And the Lord is omnibenevolent. He is all good. Satan is just a corruption. He does not have evil within himself. No, he was good and he fell, just like anything else. It is good to bring him down a few pegs in your mind. So, well, he's persisted in this rebellion for so long. Can heaven not stop Satan? The only reason that rebellion persists is because it is the sin of man that is driving it. And Satan is leveraging the justice of God and the fallenness of man to continue his reign of terror. But that sin of man, which is driving it and allowing him to continue, because the world that God made is not about him. It's about Adam and Eve and their descendants. Right? God is waiting because he's being patient and kind with his children whom he created. He's also going to take the time to show Satan, you cannot stop me. And you can't stop my people when they're with me. But that sin has been resolved by Jesus. The issue has been solved. Which is why you see the dragon sitting there before the woman waiting to devour her child. Because he knows that that child will be the one to destroy him. To destroy him. How do we know this? Well, because in Genesis chapter 3, 15, God told him. God is like the ultimate. You ever watch like boxing or UFC and they're doing the weigh in and they're like, you know, oh, what are you going to do to him in the fight tomorrow? I'm going to bust his face up and I'm going to give him on the left and a right and I'm going to drop him in the third round. You're going down, pal. That's what the Lord did to the devil. So let me tell you exactly what I'm going to do to you. And then I'm going to do it. And then everybody's going to know who's really the boss around here. In Genesis 3.15, the Lord said to the serpent, can you see, by the way, the serpent in the garden and now the dragon, like we've gone from the little serpent to the ultimate serpent here. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He says, serpent, devil, because of what you've done, in trying to corrupt mankind, one day a son is going to be born to this woman and he's going to crush your head. And yeah, you're going to bruise his heel, but let me ask you, would you rather have a bruise on your heel or your head? Rather be crushed in your heel or crushed in your head? Someday a child will be born that will end you, devil. 
And the rest of the Bible is the dragon trying to devour the child of the woman. Beginning with Cain. You've got a righteous son and a not so righteous son. So what does Satan do? He manipulates Cain to kill his own brother. Ha ha, now there's no more children left. Well, then you get Seth. And this, you have the sons of Cain and the sons of Seth. So you get the episode in Genesis 6 with the Nephilim. Where the devil is trying to corrupt the bloodline of humanity with demon blood. We talked about this a while back in Genesis chapter 6. So that God's going to have to judge the world. Well, he did, but the devil didn't get Noah. So God starts over again with Noah and places very severe restrictions on what the devil can do after this. All right, so what does he do? He finds out, Abraham, it's coming through Abraham. So watch this family, right? And what begins to happen? All of the early matriarchs of that family were barren. Did you notice that? You don't think the devil had something to do with that? If they can't have children, nobody's going to crush my head. But the Lord brought forth Isaac. He brought forth Jacob and Esau. And the devil tried to mess that one up too. Get Esau, turn Esau into a terrible person. Jacob was also a terrible person. But the Lord said, I'm going to redeem Jacob in my own sovereignty. And he did. What about when you get to the land of Egypt? Throw the firstborn of all the children into the Nile River. Let's just get rid of them. Let's get rid of the line. Let's try and just intermarry them with the Egyptians. Because if they don't have any sons, they'll only have daughters. So they'll have to marry Egyptians. Now the bloodline of Abraham is corrupted and there will never be a Messiah. Well, the Lord got them out of that. Going all the way down through the history of Israel, through the exile, you have Haman under the Persian Empire, rousing the whole empire. We're going to slaughter all the Jews. Why? Because we've got to get rid of that offspring who might crush my head one day. All the way down to when Messiah has been born. The star has, been, has shown in the east and the wise men knew about it. So what does King Herod do? Kill every child two years old and younger. Every boy in, in that region. Because he's trying to get rid of the Messiah. But guess what? Christ was born. And he's the child in this scene. I think that part's pretty obvious. He will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But he's caught up to God before the devil can get hold of him. Now, of course, nested within that is the part where the, the heel of the child was crushed, right? Jesus lived on the earth. The devil tried to tempt him. No, nothing doing there, right? So eventually, what are we going to do? Just kill him. So they crucified him. And you've got to know that the devil was sitting there grinning. We finally got him until the third day. And out of that grave came Jesus Christ. He lost. He lost. And Jesus ascended to heaven. And there he sits even to this day. The, the crucifixion was the devil's ultimate, most embarrassing failure. How do we get rid of the Messiah? We'll crucify him. Nice job, buddy. You just made the sacrifice for sins. The Lord duped him. He deceived him into doing exactly what the Lord needed to be done. Therefore, the tribulation, this last seven years, the final week that Daniel 9 talks about, becomes Satan's final attempt to wrest control of the world by force. Fine, we missed out on getting the offspring of the woman, but I'll tell you what I'll do. We're just going to take it. We're just going to grab hold of the world, make it our place, and then what's the Lord going to do? If everyone has taken my mark, and if everyone has bowed down to the golden image, and the Jews are dead, and the Christians are dead, what's the Lord going to do? To eliminate the Jews, to establish his kingdom, which is why Israel needs a refuge. Verse 6 there, you see, it brings us back to the fact that we are in this tribulation and that 
the woman will, be fl will flee to the wilderness with a place prepared for 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. Because remember, that midpoint of the tribulation, when the Antichrist says, I'm God, worship me, the abomination of desolation, that's when the flight to the wilderness has to take place. So this vision sees what's going on in the tribulation as a continuation of, of what's been happening since the beginning of time, since the Garden of Eden, and it's all going to come to a head during these seven years. So let's look at verse 7. Here's another cool verse. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And you say, well, okay, you've got my attention, Pastor. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. A war in heaven. What did that look like? I couldn't tell you. I do know that the Old Testament shows us flaming chariots and flaming swords and all the rest of that. Michael, the archangel, fighting against Satan's armies. Traditionally, there are seven archangels. Only two of them are found in the Bible, Gabriel and Michael. And in fact, Michael is the only one actually called an archangel. And in fact, he is specifically told us, told, uh, or we are told about him in Daniel, that he is the prince or the principality that God has placed over the land of Israel. And there's a war here. Don't you wish you could just like see what that moment was like? I mean, you will see it eventually. But when that, that first conflict, I mean, the abomination of desolation has just taken place. The Jews are fleeing for their lives. The Antichrist has established his rule. They're beginning to bow down and worship the golden statue. And there's Satan in heaven boasting about what he's done. His armies are cackling until finally Michael says, I've just about had enough of you. And the Lord says, all right, Michael, get him out of here. He's never been allowed to do that before, which makes you kind of wonder, wait a minute, what is Satan doing in heaven? I thought Satan lived in hell. He does not. That's his final destination. He does not live in hell. He's going there someday. What is he doing in heaven? Well, we learn this from the names that he's given. His name is Devil. This is the word in Greek, diabolos, which is why in Spanish, the word for devil is diablo. It comes from that. It means slanderer. Slanderer. Somebody's going to say nasty things about you. And isn't that a great description for the devil and what he does? I'm one of my favorite professors from college gave a message on all the ways that Satan accuses and slanders. He's like, he accuses God to you. He accuses you to God. He accuses you to others. He accuses others to you. And he accuses you to yourself. And that's probably a better sermon than what I'm teaching right now, but you can go home and think about it. Slanderer. Satan is a Hebrew word, Satan, it's transliterated. It means accuser. It can even mean prosecutor, prosecuting attorney. 
Zechariah 3 has a great picture of a courtroom in heaven where Satan is the prosecutor. That describes what he does. He accuses and he slanders. It also calls him the deceiver, the trickster. It also confirms for us that he is that serpent of old, that ancient serpent. And now, of course, he's that dragon. Now, if he is an accuser and a slanderer, where is this taking place? Well, it's taking place in heaven. And we know this confirmed for us in the book of Job. Job chapter 1, verse 6, also in Job chapter 2. It says, there was a day when the sons of God, read angels there, that's a very Old Testament way of describing angels. Angel is a much broader term than we tend to think about it, but it's still a good one. The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And you know the story. Where have you been, Satan? He says, going to and fro and walking up and down. Point being, wherever I want, because I don't answer to you. As opposed to those other angels, where have you been? Exactly where you told me to go, Lord. Fulfilling the mission. He sends his ministers as a flame of fire. They've sent me out and I've done what you said. Satan shows up, well, I've been going wherever I want because I don't respect or acknowledge your authority. And then the Lord gets into a conflict with him about Job. And what does Satan start to do? Slander and accuse Job. That's what he does. He's trying to get God to enforce his own wrath and judgment on the world. That's why the law is such a terrible thing for those of us that are sinners, because it stands there like a granite, inflexible testimony of your own sin. And there stands Satan with the scriptures open. She's a liar. He's an adulterer. How are you going to allow them to go free? He also slanders, right? Saying things that are not true, but the worst of his accusations are exactly true, unfortunately. Not only does he do that before God, he says, I know what's in these people, so I'm going to make it my business to show them what they really are. Says, yeah, Job looks like a good, righteous man, but you know what? He's rich. Of course he worships you. He's rich. You take away all his stuff, he'll curse you to your face. And so what does Satan do? He goes out to try to prove that slanderous accusation. And God goes, you know, uh, Job is uh, still doing pretty good down there. Yeah, well, he's still got his health. Well, take his health away, but you can't kill him. And he still didn't do it, right? So that, again, Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He can't read your mind. He, doesn't, he might know a lot about you, but he doesn't know what's in your heart. Only Jesus knows what's in your heart. And by the way, you should just take comfort in the fact that the one that does know your heart is the one who decided to redeem you. The one that doesn't know your heart is the one that only wants to see you accused and tormented. That's the love of God. He tempts and provokes men to sin and to serve his wicked designs. And we also see that he has angels. When they're fallen angels, we call them demons. Although the Bible does not always draw that distinction and use that terminology that way, we do. And it's, it's helpful to do that. Which reminds us that he has authority on the earth and he has rank on the earth. He has an organized structure of principalities and powers. And this part might make us uncomfortable, but it's important for us to realize the Bible is very honest about Satan's influence and reign on the earth as it stands right now. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul calls him the God of this world, the little g, God of this world. Ephesians 2, verse 2, he calls him the prince of the power of the air. And in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, he tells Jesus, about all the nations of the world, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, I've heard it preached, and it's not necessarily wrong. It's like, we can't offer anything to Jesus. They all belong to Jesus anyway. Actually, 
Satan was operating with that kind of authority and continues to do so. Principalities and powers on the earth are under his sway. That offer, while it was devilish, shall we say, godless and wicked, was not illegitimate. Because I can give you anything. I can give anybody anything. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. And that's when Jesus said, all right, I think I've heard just about enough out of you. Away from me, Satan. And this is part of the reason why we are sent out as evangelists. You know, the kingdom of God will come in actuality. But wherever you go, you're taking the kingdom of God with you. The question becomes, okay, who's king now? It's not a state of anarchy. It's every piece of ground in the world is occupied territory. It's claimed by somebody. There is some demonic principality that says, this is mine. And we show up and we say, Jesus is king. And people have incredibly irrational reactions to that testimony. When you think about it, somebody showed up and said, Jesus is king. He died for your sins and he loved you. What did you do? We killed them. Because there's demonic-inspired violence behind all of that. Because that means, Satan, you can't stand. Your kingdom is lost. Which is why I love the fact that I live in the culture in which I do. Because we look back and we were pagans, worshiping rocks and mud. And we don't even know their names anymore. Because the kingdom of this world became the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which is why I am very wary and cautioning you against those that want to go back and dig up those old religions and say, what were we doing before Jesus? So I've never met anybody like that. Well, they're out there. They're on, their in on the internet, of course. They're in the prison quite a bit. The Odinist movement. That, you know, the Christians stole our culture and we want to go back to it. There's a very a racial pride thing in that, unfortunately. That, you know, well, the, this Jewish religion came in and stole away our proud Aryan heritage, worshiping Thor. And we got to go back and worship Thor and Odin. And you shouldn't laugh because they're very serious about it. It's a problem for our guys that are in the prison. Among other things, of course. Because there is nothing Satan wants more than a kingdom. He thinks he ought to rule. He thinks he ought to be in charge of everything. He was placed in charge, it seems, of Eden. And the Lord says, I'm going to give all this land to these people. He goes, you've got to be kidding me. Look at them and look at me. The Lord goes, I didn't ask you. I created you to do this, and that should be enough for you. There are certain angels that only exist to be the wheels of God's chariot. And I'm, they're just fine with that. But he wanted more. And during the tribulation, he will work overtime to establish it. And God will not restrain him anymore. But then, of course, he's going to lose everything. And you see this war in heaven. Now, the timing of this war is debated. And I think that's because there are multiple ways of viewing this. In Luke 10, verse 18, when the disciples come back from their missionary journey, more or less, they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so, okay, so did Satan fall then or is he falling now? Is John describing something past tense? Because it seems to be happening during the time of the tribulation. It seems to be future to me. The way I understand that is Jesus saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning is either prophetic or he's saying, guys, when you go out and you cast out demons out of people, Satan's authority falls and it crumbles and it cannot stand against my gospel. But also because this is the fulfillment of what God said would happen when the Antichrist has risen. In the book of Daniel, you remember we went through Daniel verse by verse. Chapter 12, chapter 11 of Daniel is all about the rise of the Antichrist. Next week, we're going to talk about him. 
But in chapter 12, verse 1, he continues and says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So according to Daniel, when Antichrist rises, Michael will arise. There will be great tribulation, but the Jews will be delivered at that time, the nation of Israel more broadly. And this is exactly what we see here in Revelation 12. God will give Michael permission to oust Satan and his hordes, and they'll do it. And Satan will not go quietly. There's going to be war in heaven. And Michael and his angels, who have been restrained since, what do you think they wanted to do when they saw Satan's rebellion? When they saw them corrupt the Lord's earth. Or when they saw these angels having sexual congress with these women and producing these giant offspring. Just like, Lord, now, can we do it? No, it's not time yet. You've got to wait for the promised one. The promised one come, can we do it? No, now we've got to go to all the nations and tell people so that they can be saved. We're trying to help people, Michael. I know, but look what he's doing. I know. And then finally, God removes his hand of restraint at the rapture. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And, you know, stars falling and the demon locusts. And Michael's like, now? No. Now? No. Abomination, desolation. Now? Yes. And Michael says, saddle up, boys. And there's warfare in heaven. And the dragon falls from heaven. The fall of Satan. This is something that happened at the beginning Happened in the middle when Jesus died on the cross and will happen ultimately at the very end. Let's look back at these passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel that talk about the fall of Satan. Isaiah 14, 12 says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. Lucifer, another name we use for Satan, means light bearer. And it was the Greek god of the morning. The morning star, the light bringer, right? And so in this passage here, they refer to Satan as the day star, the son of the dawn. So when the, those of Greco-Roman culture looked at this and they saw a day star, oh, well, we know who the, the day star is. That's Lucifer. So that's how the name became associated with Satan. It says, how you are fallen. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Verse 15, you are brought down to shale to the far reaches of the pit. In Ezekiel 28, 16 through 17, again, remember, he's talking to the king of Tyre, but there's more to it. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Boy, will that line preach. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. So Satan fell in the past. He kind of fell a little further when Jesus came, meaning there's now there's no chance that you'll ever get this back as if there ever was. But then at the end, the Lord is going to say, Michael, would you please escort the gentleman out of here? Now, in this passage, Satan is no longer permitted even to do what he did in Job, which is appear and accuse God's people before the Lord. God is finally asserting his will. And do you notice that the minute God decides, I've had enough of you, Satan's gone? There's no like, oh boy, we've been trying to get him out of here and we'll finally do it one day. God's like, no, the day I decide you're done, you're done. 
Because Satan, remember, is not omni-anything. He's a little potent. He's not omnipotent. Once we again, we see in verse 10, another announcement of the immediate arrival of the kingdom. It's the third time we've seen this, right? It says, now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come. Remember, what we're about to read is the very quickly coming kingdom, the destruction of Babylon and the establishment of Christ. But before we can describe those events, we're reading all of these things that are happening simultaneously, giving us context for what is going to happen, okay? So we saw what's happening on the earth with the two witnesses. We're seeing what's happening in heaven with the fall of Satan. Next week, we're going to say, well, who is this Antichrist anyway that's about to fall? So that's, that's our timeline here. And we're going to look at verse 11 at, at the end because it's such a wonderful verse. But let's first notice that there is fear on the earth. Heaven's going to rejoice. Hey, no more devil. So those of you on the earth, he's angry because he knows his time is short. And rather than repent, if he is even able to do that, I doubt it. He's going to say, then I'm going to take as many down with me as I can. Verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. See, that's why this can't not be uh, Mary, because Mary is in heaven at this point, She's, as she is right now. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle. I wonder if that's the same eagle that pronounced three woes earlier in this book. So that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. So instead of a fire-breathing dragon, we have a water-breathing dragon. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So, Satan's kicked out, and he turns his attention to the woman, who is Israel, to destroy her. That's it. You, fine. You're going to kick me out? I'm going to take the thing you love more than anything else, the nation of Israel, and I'm going to exterminate them. Have fun in your kingdom. You won't have any of your people. I believe this moment is taking simultaneously and immediately following that abomination of desolation. That when the Antichrist comes casts off the rest of Babylon's restraint, declares himself to be God, standing in God's holy temple, and it's, it's sets up an image of himself and the mark of the beast, that's when the Lord says, you're done. You're out of here. So Satan returned to the earth, and he's angry. And he's going to chase down the Israelites, the Jews, which is why Jesus warned them in Matthew 24, 15 and 16. When you see the abomination of desolation which Paul defines as the Antichrist standing in the holy place. Spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And Jesus describes after that, he's like, don't go down into the house. Don't grab any, it's like a fire drill. Don't go get anything. Don't waste your time. You get out. He says, and pray that it's not winter and the snows stop you. And pray that you're not pregnant because you're going to have to run for it. Don't delay. And that's when he says, that's when the greatest tribulation the world has ever seen will come. That last seven year week is divided in Bible between the tribulation and what's called the great tribulation, the second half. 
once Antichrist has established himself and Satan is cast down. When the temple is defiled, the Jews will be hunted down and they must flee into the wilderness to where it says God has an appointed place for them for a time and times and half a time. So what does that mean? A time, one year, times, two years, half a time, half a year, three and a half years, 1,260 days, half of a week, according to Daniel 9.27. It's the same time period. It's three and a half years. God has a place prepared for the children of Israel to hide. Now, we know for a fact this is going to be in the wilderness. And we know that the wilderness would be to the south of Israel, most likely. And how can we say that? Well, there's a very interesting passage, and there's more of them, but I'm only going to share one today. In Isaiah 63, verse 1, where it talks about the return of Messiah, striking down the nations, treading the winepress of God's wrath, rescuing Israel once and for all. And where does he come from? It says, Basra in Edom, which is, of course, to the south and a little to the east of the nation of Israel. That when Christ returns to fight against the Antichrist, he does not return to Jerusalem first. He returns into the wilderness to strike down the armies of the Antichrist. Which gives us a clue. Basra. Here's the problem. We're not quite sure where Basra is. And this has given rise to legitimate, it's not a wrong thing to do, speculation about where this might be. Now, if this takes place a thousand years from now, who knows? It could be totally different. Some people really like the option of Petra as being the place where they're going to flee during this time. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, at the end of the movie, when they're going down that big narrow canyon and they come to the place where it's carved into the rock, that's a real place called Petra. And it was an impregnable fortress because to come through it, you had to go through this really narrow chasm and you just sit up there on the top with arrows and you just snipe people down. You couldn't bring your army through. It was only about this wide. So some people say that's in the cleft of the rock. That's in the wilderness. It's near where Basra would have been in the land of Edom. So maybe it's this place. You can't say that for sure, but it, maybe it's that kind of place that the Lord is going to hide them. Point is, they're going to run and God's going to have a place to keep them safe. Satan will pursue them with a flood, but God will grant them supernatural protection. The earth opens up and swallows. It's, a, it's an interesting inversion of the Red Sea. They're not passing through the waters. They're passing through the earth, and now the water is after them, but the earth swallows the water. Question becomes, is this a symbolic flood? Meaning, is the enemy going to send like drone strikes after them? Or whatever the technology of the time is to try and strike them down? Or is Satan going to somehow have power to summon a flood? I think both are legitimate. I don't think it has to be a real flood because this is a very highly symbolic passage. The point you're getting is that the Antichrist is going to try to stop them and God is going to protect them. Remember, that is what's going to happen. We already saw the ceiling of the 144,000. However you interpret that, the, what is clear is that there will be a remnant of Israel that will survive this time. Satan will be thwarted again. It's really hard to lose right after you lose, isn't it? And that will give rise to the worst persecution of Jews and Christians the world will ever see. And the means by which he will do that is through the Antichrist and his kingdom, which is what will occupy the next chapter. We see him standing on the sand of the sea, and out of the sea is going to come another symbol for us to talk about. Uh, some translations take that line, and he stood on the sand of the sea, and have it as a separate verse, verse 18. 
Uh, it does not change the text at all. It just is divided in verses differently. And also, some ancient manuscripts, rather than saying he stood on the sand of the sea, meaning the dragon, they have, and I stood on the sand of the sea, meaning John. So he's going to watch what happens. It does not change the interpretation of this one lick. It just means that uh, some of these manuscripts had a different rendering, and it seems the best one would be he stood. Okay, so let's back up. Let's, let's review one more time. Where are we in the story? The first thing we have is the rapture of the church. God will carry his people away to heaven. Some people don't believe that. That's fine. We do here. That's why we're talking about it. Number two, the rise of Babylon, a worldwide empire that will rise with great conquest and terrible famine and all the rest. Number three, the ravage of God's people. Persecution is a recurring theme throughout Revelation, which is why it's so encouraging for those of us that are being persecuted today. That God's people are going to be ravaged, Israelites and Christians both. Number four, the ruin of the planet, plagues from heaven, stars falling, the grass, the water, the sky, ruined. Number five, the revenge of the devil, which could overlap with what we talked about today, but I'm meaning primarily when God unleashes the demon hordes on the earth to torment and kill mankind. And number six is the refuge of the faithful. That we're about to read over the next few weeks some really scary and intimidating stuff about what the future world will look like. But you have to remember, in the back of all of this, God is in control. He's got his witnesses proclaiming the testimony, and he has a place of protection for those that are fleeing from the Antichrist. There is a refuge for them. What do we learn from this passage today? Well, you could take from this a horror at Satan's power and walk away really, really scared. That's not what I want you to do. I don't want you to read about the devil and go, watch out, kids, he'll get you. Because some Christians can get really, really nervous about this stuff. Especially because it is out there. There are those that rather openly and brazenly will use the name of Satan or even the worship of Satan to shock or to impress or sometimes even legitimately to worship him. Uh, every couple years, the Grammys has some great uh, music number where somebody comes out dressed as like the devil or does some sort of pagan ritual. And, you know, some people believe that's evidence that they're, you know, that's Hollywood is corrupt. Yeah, well, we don't need evidence that Hollywood is corrupt. I mean, come on. But it could just be trying to shock people, right? Just trying to get Christians to go, oh, and then talk about it and tweet about it and stuff. But it's still like, don't mess with that stuff, man. You don't want to mess with that. You also see it in more hidden places. I'm sure a lot of you have seen uh, the clothing that was put in, in Target over the Pride Month last month, which is over. Thank the Lord, it's finally over. But they had all the, you know, the, the transgender stuff for children in the, in the store. And it's, it's not a secret, but you go look up, the person that designed all of that is a Satanist. And they've got all this, like, Satan loves trans people and Satan respects pronouns and all this really, like, sick stuff. You know, and then did, did Target know? Of course I knew. Or did they, or did they just not care? Because if you don't believe, you're not really going to care, right? Point is, we see stuff like that. And you can really start to get scared and intimidated. What are they trying to do? What are they going to do? You guys, remember this. The devil cowers before God. Oh no, evil is rising. Yes, okay. You've got the almighty power of God dwelling within you if you are in Christ Jesus. The gates of hell will never prevail against the church. Aha, look at what we've done. It's like, you can't stop us. You've never been able to stop us. Rome couldn't stop us. Communism couldn't stop us. You don't think that America is going to stop us, do you? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan has always and ever been on a leash 
and he's going to be on a leash even in the worst days of history. God's going to turn Satan loose. I'm going to kill them all. Well, you can't kill them all. <laughs> Don't be afraid of the devil. That's what he likes to do. He likes to come and go, oogly, boogly, boogly, to make you all see, oh, no, he's so scary. I don't fear him. I fear God. Don't be afraid of somebody that can harm your body but can't throw you into hell. Like, I'm the king of hell. And no, you're not. You're going to hell. You're going to end up in the lake of fire. You're going to be its first resident, actually. What a high honor. It's the Antichrist, actually. So don't be afraid. The Bible tells us that if you resist the devil, he will what? Flee from you. I don't want a piece of that. Go find somebody that will listen to him. But how do we overcome? We see it in verse 11. I'm just going to just go through this quickly. But it's worth meditation more on your own time. Number one, how do they overcome? The blood of the lamb. Who's the lamb? It's Jesus. That was the killing blow to Satan. The death on the cross of Jesus. And the resurrection. He crushed his heel, but Jesus crushed his head. The blood of the lamb. What does that teach us? You can't defeat the devil in your own strength. He's not stronger than God. He is stronger than you. So guess what? Don't fight him. Stand behind Jesus and say, Lord, you get him. That seems cowardly. No, that's just smart. The blood of Jesus can break every curse. Listen, I don't care what weird stuff you've gotten into what strange grandmother you had that placed curses on you or stuff you like did when you thought it was being silly and it torments you to this day or what drug trips you had. Jesus breaks every curse and defeats every foe. And Satan loves to come up after somebody gets saved to say to them, but I've still got you. No, he does not. The name of Jesus, every foe must flee. He's on borrowed time now. The blood of the lamb. But number two is the word of their testimony. Renounce the devil's bondage and throw yourself upon the sacrifice of Christ. There is spiritual power there. When he comes to you, you say, no, I'm, I'm standing with Jesus. I'm standing on the blood of the lamb. And when you hold to that confession, Satan loses and we gain victory. There's power in the testimony. I stand with Christ and nothing will ever shake me. I'm going to make you. No, Jesus said no one will ever pluck us out of his hand. We talk about that verse a lot about eternal security. It's not really what it's about. It's about adversaries. The devil's going to get us. He goes, he can't get you out of here. I've got you. The word of your testimony, which is why you've got to hold to the word of your testimony. You've got to make that good confession. Stand on it boldly because Satan can't stand against it. Don't fall for the whole, well, we want to win the culture war, but we've got to win it secularly because they won't listen to us. Wrong. Amen. I'm going to stand on the name of Jesus. But if we stand on the name of Jesus, then the coalition will fall apart and we'll never win. No. If what we've built falls apart when Jesus gets involved, it needs to fall apart. Yeah. Yeah. And look what the Bible says is going to be like at the end when Satan has finally fallen. Isaiah 14, verses 16 and 17. Those who see you, Satan, will stare at you. And ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms and made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities and did not let his prisoners go home? That's going to be the attitude. When you finally see Satan cringing and squirming before the Lord, you go, what was I so afraid of him for? This is the guy? How did he get, what, what? Where did that even come from? You ought to have nothing to do with Satan. Not just because it's rebellion, but because it's weakness. 
and foolishness. I want cosmic power, so I'm going to go to the devil. Really? The losing side? Why not go to the one that has all power and all authority and all might? Because Satan's end is sure, and only Jesus will be king forever.